turn with me to Genesis, the, first, or the third chapter, and we're going to continue today our series of View From Here. That's a series where we're talking about worldview. And what is a worldview? We're talking about uh, the lens by which, as we, as we answer some key questions, it helps us to understand uh, what's going on with the world, what's wrong with the world, what's the future of the world, what's the solution in the world. It, this worldview helps us to make sense as we hopefully have a biblical worldview, then as we watch things that are going on in our world, it helps us to, to get it, to understand. It influences what we believe and what we say and how we act and how we react. It affects the way that we live. It's important that we have a biblical worldview. There are four questions that help us to define a biblical worldview. Let me just kind of go through them real quick. The first question is the question of where did I come from or where did we come from? The second question, what's gone wrong with the world? The third, is there a solution? And finally, what's our purpose or destiny? Now, you can, you can cut it a little thinner and you can, you, there's other questions you might uh, kind of break these apart a little more. But these are kind of the, the basics uh, of, that we wanted to talk about as we think about worldview. And so again, what does it look like for us to have a biblical worldview? Last week we started with the first question. We ask ourselves the question, where did we come from? Now, I don't know if you, if you kind of uh, sense that that is a question that I love to think about. I love it. If you were here, if you weren't here, encourage you to check it out. had a great time talking about that we, where do we come from? We came from God. And not just a small God, but we have a big, awesome God. And how wonderful was it to be reminded that this big God cares about us. So the answer to the first question, where do we come from? We came from God. The way that we answer that question makes a huge difference when it comes to our worldview. If we answer that question, where do we come from, that we came from God, it makes a difference. It makes a difference if we, on the other hand, say, where do we come from, and the answer to that question is nothing. That, that, there, that there, there is nothing. There's nobody home up there. That, that, that there, there's nothing. Only what you can see, feel, touch, smell. Just what you can, just the material kind of things of this world. That that's all that there is. If that's your answer versus the answer that there's a God, your worldview is going to be very, very, very different. Is your answer that there's a God? Or is your answer that there's, it's Nothing. Is your answer that, that we're the crowning jewel of an intelligent designer, the crowning jewel of creation, or that there is no God? And if we have a view that there is no God, that there's no need of God, and there's a lot of, a lot of different, different banners you might throw out there, a lot of different nuances of that position, but it could be any number of a, of a number of, of, of isms in our world, like secularism or atheism or materialism or secular humanism, or you could go on and on. This idea that there is no God, or if there is, it doesn't really matter, that kind of idea that really God plays no part in our lives. Again, the first answer to the first question is huge and the answer to the second question is equally huge so what's the answer to the question of what's gone wrong with the world how do we answer that what's going on in the, in the world what's what what's gone wrong in the world and the answer is not the person sitting next to you okay just to get that out of there 
The, the answer to the question, what's going wrong in the world, it's not, it's not all wrapped up and who's the president, all not wrapped up in, in you know, what's going on in Congress, although that may be a little bit of a part of it, but, uh, but it's, that's not you know, the kind of politicians and this and that and whatever you believe on whatever side of the aisle that you, you sit on, that's not the key as we think about the question, what's gone wrong with the world. It's not even, the answer to the question, what's gone wrong with the world, it's not even that Starbucks didn't put Merry Christmas on their cups this year. Now, if you saw that, this is Starbucks cups. They're holiday cups or, or, or whatever they want to call them. There's a guy that got so upset that, that um, this Internet personality got so upset that Starbucks decided to go with a plain red cup, uh, the minimalist uh, kind of cup this year, that he got on, on the Internet and he made this big plea. And he said, when you go in to order your $5 tall, half skinny, half 1% double shot, latte whip whatever 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 coffee drink for paying way more than you should for that Uh, when you go in to order that he said what you should do is what I did go in and when they ask you what your name is tell them Merry Christmas (laughs) and then that will force Starbucks to write Merry Christmas on their own cup What a wonderful plan, how awesome that is. And then, to top it all off, when they, because they call your name, when you get your cup, they'll have to say, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Let me just kind of give you the little, 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 little inside track. What has gone wrong with the world has nothing to do whether Starbucks has Merry Christmas on their cup. Has nothing to do with the fact that a secular company is not endorsing Jesus Christ as the reason for the season. That's not what's wrong with the world. If you're wondering what's gone wrong with the world, then check out what happened in Paris. What happened in Lebanon? What happened in Iraq, Afghanistan, just this weekend, to consider as we think about our world, the reminders that are all around us, that we are living in a post-modern world, that we are living in our nation, in a post-Christian nation, that we are living in our world. It's a war zone. It's a war zone between competing ideas between competing ideologies, between competing worldviews, it matters what we believe. When you have a worldview, that when you process what your worldview is and where we came from, what's wrong with the world and what the solution is and where we're going and what our destiny is, and you come to the conclusion based on your worldview that you strap a bomb on yourself and you walk into a crowded place and you are willing to kill innocent people and children and the elderly, you are willing to do that because you have this skewed worldview, it matters, friends what we believe it matters how we think it matters the conclusions that we reach and the life that we live it matters we cannot we cannot as we as we come into a place like this and we we can't just say yeah i believe in god and yeah there's some answers to some things and and we have this part of our lives over here the spiritual part and then we walk over here and we have this other part of our lives that that is that is kind of the secular part that we go out in our world and we and we live differently than than what we believe over here we cannot do that as faithful followers of Jesus Christ it matters what we believe and that belief needs to influence the way that we live our lives having a clear biblical worldview 
matters. And so let's consider that question. That second question, what's gone wrong with the world? This passage of scripture that I encourage you to turn to, the third chapter of Genesis, has been called by many biblical scholars as the most important chapter in the entire Bible. It's vitally important because it tells us, it gives a glimpse into what has gone wrong in our world. Let me read it for us again. Genesis third chapter, starting with the first verse. And now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden, any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and there was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate. Now I don't know if he was, he was on his phone checking his fantasy scores or whatever was going on with him that he was not engaged in this conversation. He didn't say, whoa, hold up just a second. Reminds us that we need to be engaged with what's going on around us and so they both ate. And in verse 7 it says, And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig tree, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I've heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? And of course, God knows the answer to all these questions. He's just wanting wanting them to interact with him. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Like, I I don't know. I just was there. It's our fault. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, if you go back to this story, you go back to the the beginning of scripture. If you go back to Adam in the garden, what what do you see in the garden? When God is with Adam in the garden, what you see in the garden is that God said of that relationship, he said, it is good. In fact, he said, it is very good. And so there is Adam in the garden, and he has a perfect home and a perfect job and a perfect wife. And and God says of it that it's good. If you were to just look at those first couple chapters about how there is God with man in the garden, in this perfect kind of place, in this perfect relationship, And all that it talks about and describing as being very good. And if you were to skip chapter 3, that we just read, part of it. If you were to skip chapter 3 and you were to go to chapter 4 and then you were to just read the first few chapters then uh, uh, after chapter 3, chapter 4 through 11. And if you just read those, 
If you go from God creating and everything's good, when you get to chapter 4, the world is absolutely turned upside down. There's jealousy and anger and murder and lying and corruption and rebellion and judgment. And when you read those chapters without chapter 3, you're like, what in the world happened between God created and all of it was good and now look at all this brokenness and all this strife and all of this crazy stuff going on. And when you read those four chapters 4 through 11 and then you look and you understand and you watch our world is it not just like what was going on after chapter 3 so in chapter 3 we can begin to understand what is vitally important to the human story What's vitally important to answer the question of what has gone wrong in our world, what's going on in our world, you got to understand chapter 3. So here is Eve. She's in the garden. Adam is there, again, checking his fancy scores. And the, the serpent comes and tempts her. And he says, now did God really say that you couldn't eat of any of the trees in the garden? And he twists and kind of puts that negative spin on what God said. He puts a negative spin on the positive thing that God said. You can eat whatever you want to in the garden. You can do whatever you want to do. Just there's this one tree. Don't eat from that tree because if you eat from that tree, you touch that tree, it's not going to end well for you. God was trying to protect them and trying to help them. And when God says, do something, don't do something, it's always for our benefit, always for our good. Even though we don't get it, we don't see it sometimes, trust me, it always ends better if we listen to what God said. And so she though, instead of listening to God, begins to listen to this negative spin. And Satan continues. He says, <clears throat> do, do whatever you want. You know, God said, do whatever you want, but just don't eat from that one tree. And, and the serpent spins that. Well, the only reason he told you that is because he knows what's going to happen when you eat from that tree. Because when you eat from that tree, then you're going to be like him. He's trying to keep you from something great. You want to be great? You want to be like God? Then you need to eat from that tree. And with that, Eve begins to doubt God's goodness. Doubt that God really has her best interests at heart. He gets her to begin to wonder, can I really trust God? And is that not the same position that we sometimes, as the tempter kind of whispers in our ear, when there's some opportunity, there's some whatever, there's some decision, there's some path, the world says, hey, you know what? You go for that. It's no big deal. Yeah, yeah. maybe the Bible, maybe, maybe God says that, but you know what? That's... that's it's not going to end poorly. It's great. God doesn't want you to have fun. That's the only reason. And so as those doubts begin to take root, those seeds that were planted by the serpent, they increase then that, uh, that seed as it takes root, it begins to be watered as he, as he throws out then a flat out lie. He says there, you will not die. God said that, it's not going to happen. And he goes on, because God knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God. And so the seeds of rebellion against God have taken root, they've sprouted, and now Adam and Eve see their chance to be their own boss. To see their chance, to write their own ticket, to do their own thing, to, to be on their own. Like, we don't need God, we can be like God. And so they make their choice, and with that choice, sin enters the world. Romans 5 
Chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. They sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, we've inherited that sin nature, and we have all, we, like, it, like it says, we have all, the, the death has spread to all men because all have sinned. We have taken that sin nature, we've acted on it. And so what's the answer to the question? The answer to the question that that's, that's, its consequences reverberate through history into our generation, the, the consequences as we've lived our own life and we've inherited this sin nature and we've acted on it our own, in our own ways and we have all in our own right rebelled against God. So what's the problem in this world? What's gone wrong with this world? It's simple. We have. We've gone wrong. In the next few verses, you can see the consequences of what's gone wrong. And these consequences that we see that are written about here in this third chapter, as the story is told, again, they are consequences that reverberate into our own lives to this day. The first consequence that we see here in this third chapter is that our sin brings disruption in our relationship with God. Immediately, what happened? They sinned, and then what's it say? That they, they, hear, they hear God, and, and so they run away and try to hide. They realize that they're naked. They sow fig leaves trying to hide themselves from God. They felt shame for the first time shame as a result of their sin as a result of their decisions as a result of giving in to those temptations and there was a death there was a spiritual death there wasn't a physical death but there was a spiritual death God said that you will die and they did they died spiritually in that moment the relationship that they had with God this perfect relationship in this perfect garden broken as a result of their sin Notice that they try to do their own thing, try, like, like we do, try to fix it ourselves. They try to fix it themselves. They try to sew some fig leaves together. They try to cover up their nakedness, try to cover up their shame. It doesn't work. And sin, as a disruption of the relationship that we have with God, just like it was in their lives, it's something that still affects us today. Sin disrupts our relationship with God. The second thing we notice as we think about sin and the effects that it has, again, as these effects reverberate through history to our generation, as we think about what's wrong with the world, that sin brings a disruption in our relationship with each other. And you notice that very quickly when Adam and Eve, when God is there with them and he begins to ask them questions, you see a disruption in the relationship that Adam had with Eve and they begin to blame each other. In fact, the audacity of Adam to begin with, what does he say? Well, you gave this woman to me. It's her fault. And really, it's your fault because if you hadn't given her to me, I, she's the, it's all her. Can you imagine the look that Eve... I mean, just imagine that moment. Can you imagine the look that Eve gave Adam in that moment when, when Adam throws her under the bus and Adam says, well, it's all her fault? I mean, let's just... Let me just kind of put the cookies on the bottom shelf. We're just all pretty lucky that the human race got started at all. If you follow me, okay, that's kind of what was going on in that moment as he gives her the, as she gives him the death stare. And then Eve, what does she do? She blames the serpent. 
And we've all, haven't we, felt the disruption in relationships because of our sin and how it breaks relationships with people. We understand how when someone else sins against us, how it destroys our relationship with them. Sin destroys. It destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our relationship with each other. And thirdly, sin brings into our lives, just like it did with Adam and Eve, sin brings disorder into creation. If you look at the rest of chapter 3 and you read through after what we read, but then you read the rest of it, you see just all these curses. And here's the results. Here's what's happening now as a result of this sin. These things are going to happen. Any of you moms, wasn't that a great time when you had your child? There's some good parts to it, obviously, but there was some pain. And that's what he said. In childbirth, you will have pain. It will not go easy for you, he says. God did. There was a curse that had an effect. You look at those other curses, another curse that it talks about. He talks about that as a result of your sin, that the ground will be, is cursed. This is going to be difficult for you. And this, this earth, in other words, is there's a disorder in this earth. And we don't have time to go into all of it. But sometimes we ask the question, why are there earthquakes? And why are there hurricanes? And why are these things? It is the groanings of the created order as it groans against, as the curse is lived out. As we see it happening, it reverberates to our generation. The effects of the brokenness and disorder. We underestimate the destructive power of sin that even tears at the very fabric of this world across the entire created order. There's a disorder to creation as a result of our sin. Now there's disagreement across the spectrum of worldviews. Again, if we're in this worldview, this area where we believe that, that God created, that, that we're a result of that, that there is a God, that he's engaged in this world, and that there's a problem, what's gone wrong with this world, we have. And so there's those uh, answers to the questions, and we'll get to the other answers uh, in subsequent weeks. But then on this other end, you have this idea that there is no God. And the, the other part of that, that answer to the question, there is no God. And so, what again, what we can see, feel, touch, smell, whatever, that's all that matters in this world. And so the answer to the question then of what's gone wrong, well, on the other end, some would say, well, nothing's gone wrong. I was doing some research this week, trying to understand what some of the other worldviews, how they viewed this world and, you know, what were their answers to these questions? And I ran across what uh, a worldview, a guy that was on this end, that there is no God and, you know, God doesn't matter and we don't need to, you know, his effects, that, you don't even think about that. It's just about kind of secular what's happening in the world it needs to be, you know, whatever. And so that kind of that worldview and he had a blog post and here was the, here's the title of the blog post. What's wrong with the world? Dot, dot, dot. Not a blank thing. And you can insert the curse word in there. I'm not going to use it. What's gone wrong with the world? His assessment, not a blank thing. Nothing's wrong. In our modern culture, there's this view that our biblical idea of sin seems harsh. Seems degrading to our human dignity. After all, we're getting better, right? We hear calls from influential thinkers that want to dismiss the idea of sin, of judgment, of hell as repressive and unenlightened. 
And there are some, not all, but some in that family of thinkers on that end of the spectrum of worldview that have proposed the idea that instead of the idea of man's sinfulness, that we need to think in terms of we are marching towards utopia. The worldview that says that we are all intrinsically good, that from the, from the core of who we are, we are good by nature. And if we just have the right social conditions, then the good in us will emerge and we will find this utopian state if we can just figure it out. And so when the answer to the first question is there is no God, and the answer to the first question is there is no God and that that we as humans are on this long march advancing, that we are evolving into better versions of our former selves, the doctrine of sin and the fall and there's something wrong messes up the narrative. The problem in our world, they say on this other end of the worldview spectrum, they would say that the problems of the world, they, they, they come from a variety of sources and the answers, there's a variety of potential answers that, that is a result of maybe ignorance or it's a result of poverty or the, as a result of some undesirable other social conditions. And if we just improve education, if we just enhance people's economic conditions, if we just re-engineer some social structures, then we can fix the issues of our world and again we can march forward, we can find the solutions We can fix it on our own. And the biblical worldview on the other side of the spectrum says the world is broken and by ourselves we cannot fix it. So what's the answer? It matters. The answer matters. So what's the answer? Are we the problem or are we the solution? And the Bible says it makes it really clear. It says that we're the problem. The dominant competing worldview, in, in, in certainly in our nation and in other parts of the world, it's not the only worldview, but the dominant in our culture, the other dominant worldview is that, is that we are the solution. Romans 3 verse 10 says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks, God, seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Again, the problems as we see, as Scripture talks about them, we see the, the issues in the world that we are not the solution. The other worldview says that, that we are the solution, that we can figure it out on our own, that we can get better and better and better and finally reach that utopian state. Here's a picture I want to show you. This is a couple pictures of my son Caleb's dorm room. Um, These are not staged. These are actual photos, okay? These have not been photoshopped in. I have no idea what that that questionable substance in that bowl is on that bottom shelf. That's kind of interesting. I have no idea what that is. Um, This, I just want to say, this is not his actual dorm room. This is their apartment. They have two rooms. This is his... uh, buddy's room is the other room in their room so I just want to make that clear I told him I would I would let you know that that is not actually his room 
although I won't speculate on whether his room is actually worse than this one, but uh, that's not for me to say. Um, but if, you, if you've lived in that setting, I've lived in that setting, some of you have lived in that setting, one of the things that can literally save your life when you live in a setting like this is the sniff test. So when there's, a, there's an article of clothing like we see you know, scattered about the floor, and when someone says, hey, is that clean? You don't take their word for it, you use the sniff test. So when you want to you have a, a, maybe a, a bowl of cereal, and you ask the person, your roommate, hey, hey, is the milk in the refrigerator, is it still good? No matter what their answer is, you really, if you again, this could literally save your life. You need, when you open the refrigerator, you take the carton out, you need to open it up, and before you pour it and eat it, you need to do, trust me, the sniff test. When you do the sniff test, it helps you to understand if what they're saying is actually the truth. Does it smell funny? Does it, does it really work? Is it true? Does it mesh with reality? That's the questions, that's the sniff test that we need to give to these other worldviews. We need to give them the sniff test. We don't just need to take what our culture says for granted or what, what the, you know, the, the people that just want to throw out ideas and here's how you need to think. And when they say, say certain things and make, come to certain conclusions, we need to do the sniff test. And so, does the world, and so let's do the sniff test. Does the, does the worldview that we are an ever-evolving species, that we are getting better, that we are inherently good, does it stand up to the sniff test? Does the idea that if we just get the right politician in office, if we just throw enough money at the social problem, if there's just more education, or if we just create the right social conditions and on and on and on, that we can fix it? Does that, does the, does that, does the sniff test, does, what, what's the result of that? Does it add up? Does it pass the sniff test? Chuck Colson remarked in How Shall We Live, book he wrote. He says, one can hardly say that the biblical worldview of sin is unrealistic with its frank acknowledgement of the human disposition to make wrong moral choices and inflict harm and suffering on others friends when we do the sniff test to the biblical worldview that there is a god that wants to have a relationship with us but we chose instead to do our own thing and this world is broken and this is not the end game that this is only part and God is trying to restore his ideal in this world and we're a part of that restoration but there, there, is things, there are things in this world that are broken and we broke them does that stand up to the sniff test? Look around. Did you, did you check out? Did you, did you see it on Facebook? Did you, did you watch the Twitter feed? Did you, did you see it in the newspaper? Did you watch the news? It's all over the place. What happened in Paris reminds us that the, 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 this worldview that we're getting better and if we just have more time and more money and more whatever, that we're going to fix it all on our own, that does not stand up to the sniff test. The idea of there being no ultimate objective standard of right and wrong. How's that working out for us? How's the notion that if it feels good, just kind of do it? How's that, how's that working out for our society? How does that, the idea that there is no God and so ethics and morality boil down to our own choice and that the ever-changing norm of what's right and wrong is this moving target, how's that, how's that going for us? 
On the surface, it might seem at a glance to, oh, that's fine. Everything's fine in our culture. But when we as individuals begin to allow the full implications of a godless universe, a universe without ultimate norms, a universe without ultimate values, a universe without ultimate truth, it comes down to what Doshkineski said when he, he wrote, without God, all things are permissible. That is the road that we eventually, that, that's where that leads. Again, does that not seem to be the direction that our culture is headed? And inevitably, that road leads to a bankruptcy of hope, a bankruptcy and a philosophy of despair. And so friends, what's the problem? What's gone wrong? And what's gone wrong is that we have. And this weekend, again, is a as we think about the radical worldviews that are out there that move people to massacre innocent people and that that is the solution, that's why ideas matter. That's why worldviews and having a biblical worldview, why it matters. And what we believe about where we came from matters. What we believe about what's gone wrong with this world matters. As Dan and the worship team comes back up, even, as, even though we're going to Next week, get into the solution to the problem of this world. I don't want to leave us hanging. I don't want to have a Paul Harvey moment that gets res- the resolution next week. Friends, we have an answer. We have an answer to the problem that plagues our world. There is a solution to what's wrong, and God brought it. It was realized in the person of Jesus Christ. It was alluded to in chapter 3 when it talks about that there will come a day when there will be one who will stomp the head of the serpent. His heel will be bruised. That was Jesus who destroyed death once and for all through what he did for us on the cross. Rick Warren said it well when he said, "Without, without God, life has no purpose. And without purpose, life has no meaning. Without meaning, life has no significance or hope. Look around, assess the world, understand what's going around, and understand that there is one answer. There is one remedy. It is the person of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, God, today as we conclude, God, it's, it's, it's kind of depressing. It's fills us with despair when we look around this world and we see all of the brokenness and the way that affects not just people across an ocean in, a, in Lebanon or in Iraq or Afghanistan or in Syria or in Paris, God, but we understand that, that, that the issues of our world plague us in our own lives. God, I pray that you would help us not to stay in despair, but today as we turn to you, that we would trust that your son, Jesus Christ, is our hope. So Father, today we step across that line of faith and we say, God, in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of all the stupidity of this world, God, I choose to put my trust and my hope in Jesus. I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize I'm a pro- the problem. But thank you, Jesus, for coming as a solution to my problem. I need to follow your son, Jesus Christ. And so today put my trust and my faith in you. God, thank you for giving a solution to the problem. Thank you, Father, we celebrate Jesus. It's in his name and for his sake that we pray.